Yo, welcome back. It's good to be with you today. It's going to be fun. I've got my friends Bonnie and Rajiv Rambob. They're pastors at Parkside Community Church on the south side of Sacramento. So if you're out in Northern California, but on the south side of Sacramento, don't get those directions mixed up. Uh, you can check them out. Uh, Bonnie and Rajiv are really interesting people. You're going to start to get a sense of that today. And um, if not, you should check out. If you don't get a full sense that they're interesting, we've done a bad job. But also, if you want to find out more about them, I'll put their link and some of their bio in the show notes, and you can check it out. Um, I forgot as we were talking to do my little thing where I invite people to remember that they're in the middle of a really beautiful story in spite of all the challenges. However, we did talk about beauty, and we did kind of get at it from a different angle. And so I think some of that comes through. Hey, as always, if you like what you're hearing, don't be shy about subscribing, sharing it with a friend, and liking it, uh, following it, starring it, whatever it is on your particular podcasting platform that it, that it wants from you. Um, if you want to find out more about what I'm doing, feel free to sign up for the newsletter at jonathanfosteronline.com. Got a few projects that are happening right now. And when you sign up for the newsletter, you get a free story from me. Yeah, you just thought you were signing up to get cool information from me and insights from time to time, which you will get, but you also get the free story that'll help you. Well, here's the hope. I hope it'll help you process some theological stuff at a different, maybe from a different angle than you have before. Um, it's one of the short stories that is in a collection of short stories that'll be coming out soon called The Hope and Melvin of Humanity and Other Surprising Short Stories. And I tell you what it's about, but I think I want you to try to figure it out on your own. If I tell you, it's just going to mitigate the whole effectiveness and the enjoyment. And we can't have that happening. We can't have mitigation of effectiveness and enjoyment happening. All right. So uh, patreon.com forward slash Jonathan underscore Foster is a way to subscribe and uh, to support me economically. And you can do that for a really small amount. And so hopefully that's not too big a burden and that helps me out a lot and hopefully it'll help you. It'll be one of those classic win-win things. Um, so yeah, a few projects. Actually, one of the little things I've been involved in lately is a chapter in a book called Partnering with God. And Bonnie, whom we're going to hear from in a little bit, is one of the editors. So if you don't like what I write in that book, you can blame her. That would be outstanding. Actually, if you don't like anything that I do... If you could just blame these guys that I'm going to talk to today, that'd be helpful for me. Uh, we'll try to give you their contact info so you can <laughs> track them down and just complain in general about me. Okay, enough of all of that. What we really need right now is some more of those weird kind of haunting R&B vocals we heard earlier. So let's do that. Then we'll get into the conversation with Bonnie and Rajiv. Thanks, everyone. How about we start here? If you guys were to draw a little map describing your theological journey from, you know, conservative, whatever, Seventh-day Adventist, little Bonnie and little Rajiv people, Mm-hmm. As point A across time, and you're you're marking lines and making legends and stuff. Um, 
to point B, which is where you're at now, what, what are one or two spots that you circle and you star that you recognize were, were spots where you really had to go a whole new direction? You know, was there, what was the cognitive dissonance that was happening there? What was the tension? And as you look back, you're like, oh man, yeah, that's where we started going this direction and not that. I mean, there might be a ton, but you know, one or two or three. Yeah, I'd love mm. that question. Do you want to mm-hmm. start? Not really, but I will. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, once you, you you talked about the map idea I had, I'm a very visual person. So I was looking at this map and, you know, the first part of my life, uh, you know, if someone was going to do uh, like a map, like map my my life to this point, I was on the straight and narrow. I mean, I, I was really pretty good for the most part of following the stuff I grew up being taught. You know, adolescents do what adolescents do. And I was certainly in that camp. But there was, you know, I would say there was these like tiny little detours that were just sort of happened during adolescence. Um, and then, you know, in early adulthood, college, and right after graduation, working for the church. I mean, I was right in line, you know. So there, there was very little differentiation. Even though I feel like I was on the left edge of the line of the community, you know, from early on being um, being an immigrant, being a dark-skinned minority, we were more aligned with the left side of the political realm in our church than some. So that, that part, that thread has sort of stayed true. And then you get to my early thirties and there's an abyss, kind of this pit of blackness where I disappear. It's like, you know, and, and the unraveling basically, I mean, it's such a similar yet completely unique story where the realization that I did, I wasn't taught things that most of the world is taught the things that I was taught that was shared by other communities was very skewed in its presentation. Um, and being somebody who really likes to learn, who likes to, to have information and be given a chance to discern, uh, was angry, felt betrayed. Um, and because the God I was given in childhood was based on these really um, half-truths and misguided interpretations, it all fell apart for me. I mean, God was gone. There was nothing left to, to hold the God I, I was given in childhood together, thus the abyss. And, um, it, you know, my entire identity was wrapped up mm-hmm. in, in that world. And so, you know, loss of career, sense of self, sense of place. Um, the one thing that held together miraculously was family, you know, marriage relationship, our kids still speak to us. Um, and then coming out on the other side, for a long time, there were like, maybe there were sightings. There's no line, but there were sightings like, hey, we saw him over here. <laughs> he and hey, we saw him over here. He you know, he, he, he's, he's maybe crawling out of the abyss. And then eventually over time getting reacquainted 
with what a spirit or getting newly acquainted to something new and different than I had ever known, um, a, a way of being in spiritual relationship to the divine and to fellow human beings um, emerged. And I would say that path has been more solidified and identifiable over the last six, seven years. Um, and, and part of, you know, part of this new relationship is one that is very clear between myself and the divine that if, if I'm where I am at today, five years from now, we both failed. Mm. How about you, Bonnie? Um, yeah, for me, well, how far out there do you want me to go? <laughs> this is, I got a, a rather radical story when it comes to, um, you know, Christianity in general. So I'm just going to be authentic to my story, ask whatever questions you want, and um, we'll see what happens. But I think very early on, I had a moment, one of those little moments that you could color in a little darker in the map. Um, from my very earliest memories, I remember spending time like three years old. Before my sister was born, she was three and I was three and a half when she was born, my little sister. Um, I remember spending time outside uh, on the Seventh-day Adventist school campus where I lived with my parents. My parents also work for the church. I'm fourth generation on both sides of my family. Um, I, I can remember being outside kind of in my own little, you know, reverie, imagination, and, and always having a sense that there was a presence with me. And uh, this presence I interpreted as an imaginary friend. I mean, that's the language that I was given by the adults around me because I... I, uh, this, this presence revealed itself to me as misty and, um, and like, you know, I set a, a place at the table for misty at dinner time. Okay. Wait, I, that yeah, was, I told that, you I was out there. No, no, cool. that's the name. I thought you were like going for like mystery, no. Like, but no, the name is no actually. misty. Yes. Misty. It was this feminine. And now that I, you know, look back on it, I have language like mystical experience or, a sense of the divine feminine or, you know, whatever you want to call it. And that presence has um, continued on with me, separate from outside of the church world, outside of the fundamentalist dogma that I embraced fully. But it was always a little like tug at my, my deepest self um, that just stayed with me. So there's that moment. And then I remember kind of um, transferring, you know, Misty's impact in my life to Jesus because in Sunday, in well, Sabbath school in the Seventh-day Adventist tradition, but in the Christian education programs that I was involved in from birth, Jesus was always described as your friend who's always with you, lives inside your heart, you know. Um, so I just sort of like related those two, even though I knew it wasn't the same thing, but the, all these adults were giving me this information. And so I sort of just transferred Misty and I just put Misty into Jesus. Um, and then my, comp my relationship with Jesus has been complicated for lots of reasons, mainly because of the way Jesus was presented to me in the tradition growing up. But one of the ways that Jesus was presented is um, as a savior for our personal individual sins. 
And that uh, I remember very, at a very young age, being taught that my sinfulness has something to do with Jesus's death on the cross. And I remember like, that was a pill I just sort of half swallowed. I remember feeling an inner rebellion to that. Like I'm five, you know, I'm six. What, what did I do to impact the, the Roman soldiers in terms of their decision to kill Jesus or whatever, whatever the stories were that I were, was told at that time about why Jesus died or how Jesus died. Um, and, and that, you know, um, that prevented me from ever having a true altar call coming to Jesus moment ever. And I remember as an adolescent, we had the whole weeks of prayer. I don't know what it's like in the, in the, in the other traditions or in church of Nazarene, but I, but for us, we had like the full on morning services, evening services, everybody goes. And then there's always an altar call. There's always this come forward if, and when you're ready to give your life to Jesus and, you know, pray the sinner's prayer and you're in. And I just always sat in the back. Like I, I love the singing. I appreciated the good preaching. I appreciated the emotional high that I experienced, but I never ever felt this like get up and walk to the front inside of myself. Um, and then I began to feel so guilty about that. Like I thought I had maybe what we would call in my tradition, uh, the uh, unpardonable sin, the, 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 the sin where the Holy Spirit can't even reach you. Like you're so far gone <laughs> that there is never this prompting that you feel to respond to Jesus's love. And so you're just like, forget it. You're, you're, you're hopeless. Um, so I began to feel very guilty about that. Then I, and then I just sort of like, well, just do all the right things. And, you know, maybe people won't notice that I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not standing up and going forward when everybody else is. Um, I think I did a couple times because I was sitting with friends and they all went, but it was never like from an inner, inner place of, of truth. And then, you know, in early thirties, um, I came across punk rock <laughs> and, and the, the mother of punk rock, as some people call her, Patti Smith. And one of the lyrics in her song was, um, Jesus may have died for your sins, but he didn't die for mine. And that just like rang all sorts of bells in me. And I began to then start reading like, what is this doctrine of Jesus' death for, my, for, for individual sins? And, you know, why is it that we hold on to that as being so central to what the whole story of Jesus is about? And as I begin to read, I begin to discover that there's a, a lot more out there around what Jesus' death was about. But then also there's all these other myths, Christ myths from other traditions like Zoroastrian, Zoroastrianism and um, other like pagan Christs that were adopted by the Romans as they formed what we now call Western Christianity. And I was never taught any of that. And so I was taught, in fact, that, uh, you know, Christmas, 
you should hold all these things a little bit suspect. The traditions around like Christmas trees and Halloween and, um, you know, anything that might have infiltrated Christianity that had a pagan origin or could have had a pagan origin, you're supposed to hold those under sort of suspicious, a suspicious eye. So as I was learning all of this, um, I came to this moment on the map where I woke up in the morning and it was just like this, this belief that Jesus died for people's sins went away. It was gone. And then I felt like, now what do I do? Because <laughs> that was the main yeah, thing. Right. That was the oh, main yeah, thing. Yeah. And, and who could I tell that to? Like, you know, I, I'm supposed to be evangelizing on that principle. So uh, then once, G, once that went, it all unraveled, you know, similar to, I think, what Rajiv described as like this unraveling process. Um, you know, we all have our, we had very individual journeys, but uh, the, the, the process itself had some similarities. And once you pull on one thread, <laughs> they all start falling apart. Okay. So I think though, you know, that piece, that, that piece of not accepting this atonement doctrine and never accepting this atonement doctrine fully and feeling guilty for that first and then feeling completely free and unburdened on the other end when I just let it, when it just disappeared. I wouldn't say I actually consciously let it go. I think it just like, I woke up and I was like, that's no longer lives in me at all. It's gone. It's absent. There's now an empty space there <laughs> and I don't know what to do with it. So that's how I would answer that question. That's great. Yeah, that whole atonement thing, man, that'll that'll set you on a new trajectory, make you write a new map for sure, especially when you've grown up, as it sounds like a lot of all of us have it, one way or another being conditioned to think that that's, I mean, honestly, that's the entirety of the whole thing. You, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Uh, so is Misty, is Misty still with you? Yes. Um, yes. In a, in a very different way, but, um, How about Patty Smith? <laughs> yeah. Patty Smith too. Cool. And a few other, uh, punk rockers. <laughs> so Rajiv, were you guys doing this together? Are we doing it separately? You're off in the abyss. Bonnie's like, where the heck is Rajiv? Or were you like, how did that happen? Yeah, Bonnie. Bonnie has been, I think, from the beginning of our relationship. We met. We met at freshman orientation at a Seventh Adventist college on the steps of church. Don't even tell the necktie piano story. Yeah. Well. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> this is <laughs> so how you anyway, got to know Jonathan. We. We. Uh, you know, had that relationship, and really since the beginning of our relationship, she's been in a spiritual leader role um in in our in our relationship and so um not not that I was a passive participant by any stretch because that's that's not who I am or how I'm wired but her you know I'm I'm one who's dedicated to a cause and and growing up I was I was convinced you know as Bonnie was saying she wasn't one of the altar call people oh my god I was one of the first few up there and it was real for me I mean, when I think about it now and reflect on it, 
none of that for me was fake. It was, for me, it wasn't contrived. It was like genuine. And I, and I felt something, I experienced something. And, and the sad part is I believe it was manipulated. You know, that spiritual experience was manipulated by um, the people around me to some degree or another. And, and maybe they didn't even know they were engaged in manipulation, but that's, that was my thing. So as, as we're, um, you know, we had some questions as people do about the faith they grew up in. Um, and Bonnie's out there thinking about learning what, what's out there. And I'm thinking, well, how do we do the reformation internally? How do we bring about reform? And then she's bringing information. This is where that information piece comes. I'm like, what? Yeah. I mean, this whole communion thing, that is pretty pagan eating the flesh, drinking the blood of a leader to, you know, be imbued with their goodness and mercy and, you know, their strength and power. Um, that isn't unique to Christianity and it predates Christianity. And, and it's really a, a, a magnificent ritual, which can also be um, manipulated. So, you know, she's out there and I'm just like, what the, and so I started reaching out to some friends and colleagues that went through seminary. We were ministers in the field of education. So that was our training and expertise. I hadn't gone to seminary at that point. So I reached out to them. I was like, Hey, do you guys, you guys know about this shit? And they're like, yeah, we actually learn about it. And we're kind of told not to talk about it. It's like, we're, we're trained to be aware. So if it comes to us, we can respond to it and keep people on the path. And that's, that's sort of where I just started losing it. Like I just started losing my mind. And, but before then, you know, before then, part of the thoughts in my mind were, am I going to be able to survive? Is this marriage going to survive with me remaining a believer and my spouse being lost? I mean, I, these are the words that I had at the time. Right. Um, how, do, how do I father my children in, in this dynamic? Because they're going to have to, like, make choices. Um, or if this doesn't somehow resolve, does this have to end? I mean, the, these are the, the real questions that are going through my head. Um, and fortunately, you know, none of those things came to pass in that way, but they were, they, they became possibilities in ways I never thought they'd become possibilities uh, up to that point. And, and that, that is a sort of a, you know, a two by four to the face that, you know, just, it just doesn't feel good. So, and then, you know, I just stayed in conversation because that's something Bonnie and I've done from day one and asked a lot of questions. We argued, we debated. And um, again, being somebody who really appreciates information and, and then being given the opportunity to make up my mind about where I'm going to rest my, my faith you know, because there's always an unknown, it just started to come clear that what I was handed wasn't the whole truth, wasn't, wasn't all the information at hand. So it wasn't really a shift to anything else right away. It was a, I need to let this go in order to be open to what else is out there. And, and you know, and, and then so our, our relationship kind of evolved 
into that new way of being. And in many ways that, that continues to be our dynamic. It's like, there's a lot of stuff we don't know, but here's a really great next question. What do you think? <laughs> um, and, and so that's, that's been really fun. That's cool. Um, yeah, I think people outside of overly religious systems might be, I don't know, maybe they wouldn't, but they might be really surprised at how interwoven all this stuff is with our marriages and with our kids and our families and our heritage and our third, fourth generation, whatever. It's your entire life when you start to unravel it. It is quite amazing. And I'm glad we're talking about this because I'm sure you guys have friends like this too, but a lot of folks I interact with either through church or just myself, you know, their partner or some member of their family is at a completely different place. Mm. So Bonnie, how do you, how did you navigate all that between in your marriage? And um, I mean, obviously clearly Rajiv is a pain in the ass. So (laughs) with him um, and then, and, or what would you say to folks who are in the middle of these deeply entangled relationships, but you're, your thinking has changed, you know, and you're not on the same page, maybe. Yeah, you know, I've, I've tried to spend some time really reflecting on that because I think it it takes, you know, uh, deep reflection and hindsight to be able to answer a question like that. And I'm not as in touch with the reflection, you know, as I am with the actual mess of the moment. Um, and it felt like a huge mess. Because, uh, yes, there's the, the family dynamic, there's my parents, there's Rajiv's parents, um, and there's the promise in us, put on us by the entire church. Um, Rajiv certainly as like a rising leader in the echelon of leadership um, within the church and, and identified as like, you know, a, like, I don't know what you want to call it, but somebody with great promise and potential. Um, and you know, as a woman, I only had so far that I could go and only certain circles that I was allowed to have influence within. And that always, that was another, that was a difficult rub that sort of stayed with me too, all throughout, um, and made leaving easier. Um, but as, yeah, so all of that is going on. And then there's the internal pieces of, I don't know the ground I stand on anymore, So I don't even know how, I don't even know from what point I'm in a relationship with you because I don't, I don't know. There isn't a core within me that I rely upon to draw a line from me to you. Like there was before, right? It was so clear. The whole community saw it and, and um, blessed it. Mm -hmm. And now that that wasn't even there. So uh, it was a mess. It was a great big mess. And I, I would say that there were several points on the map where we were really at a crossroads where it was like, hmm, I, I, I love you enough to want you to be able to follow what you need to, you know, to go where you need to go. I just don't know if I can go with you. And there, there were several times where we, you know, we said that we had two young kids and I think that fact helped us to say, well, let's keep walking in the mess together a little bit longer 
and see if we might be able to find a way to be alongside. So throughout it, we had deep love and respect for each other. There were moments when, when that deep love and respect got in the way of seeing a future together. Um, and that's just the truth. Uh, so, and then the other side of that is the, um, we, we had established in our relationship early on because we both can be a pain in the ass. I think that's probably why we had established some good rules for engagement around disagreement. Um, you might call them good fighting rules. I think every couple should have those um, ones where you can, you can be really free to say what you need to say with the tone, even that you need to say it, but then not make it personal <laughs> directed at the other person or um, take it personally when there's a rising energy in, in the other um, because there's something that they just really need to say. And, and we had good rules for engagement around, you know, I need a minute Leave me, give me some space and then let's make an appointment to come back together again in, in some time. And we, we, we used all those tools and we made up more tools as we went along. Um, and, you know, there, was, there were mental health issues because there's no way to have a spiritual breakdown like this without also having the mind, the mental faculties break down too. So I suffered from depression through this period um, significantly. Uh, to the point where I couldn't function really in the day-to-day -day grind other than very small tasks um, for about 18 months. So Rajiv then was, you know, he was left with the responsibility of making sure our bills could get paid and um, like just holding, holding the family space, holding it together. And then there were other periods where, you know, I, I tried to lean into that a little more and, and he, he was able to take a little space where he could step out of the grind. And so, uh, yeah, all of that, all of that was part of it. And all of that is what made it possible for us to be where we are now in a very different marriage. Like we've been married and divorced like four or five times now to each other. Yeah, it sounds awful, and it sounds really beautiful. Thank you. That really does. That's a, isn't that amazing how that works? Like, there are two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you talked about marriage rules. So, Jana and I, we really, our big thing from the very beginning was we decided that she would make all the small decisions and I would make all the big decisions. That's what we always said. And we've been married 31 years and um, we haven't had any big decisions yet. <laughs> Maybe you will one day. <laughs> That's how that old joke goes. I'd assumed, I'd assumed you guys had heard that, but you can, <laughs> you can freely pass that on. <laughs> Uh, no. Okay. So we should say something about how, yeah, how horrible and beautiful. Mm. What, what is all of that? And I don't, I don't just mean in your marriage, but in, in life, why, how can things be so bad, but also there be such richness and depth, mm. art and beauty going on at the same time? 
Uh, what does that mean? I actually think, Rajiv, you know, um, I shouldn't just out you here, but I'm going to anyway. But part of what Rajiv's leaned into recently, like since seminary, is um, this understanding of goddess. And, and, it, and, and that, your question is embedded in that. So I'd love to hear from Rajiv. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot. Let me try to make it concrete first, and as as much as I can, and then get a little more ethereal. Um, but music is really important to me, all kinds of music. And there's a few pieces. There's a couple of um, songs, like in that whole deconstruction, like the falling apart pay, phase. Um, Soundgarden's album "Bad Motor Finger" has some great, like. Um, just just passionate songs about uh, losing your faith in things. And it's really cool. But there's one where the imagery is great. And, you know, they're, they're a band that I like. I, I wouldn't consider them incredible musicians, but Weezer, you know, they've got uh, Undone, the song Undone. And there's this line, you know, this, this paragraph. It says, if you want to destroy my sweater, hold this thread as I walk away. Watch me unravel. I'll soon be naked, lying on the floor, lying on the floor. I've come undone. Mm. And so that experience itself is awful. But to have the privilege of going through that with somebody or a group of people who surround you while you're on the floor, naked, exposed, and moaning and groaning to be around you, providing some space and protection for you to do that, and knowing that, you know what, somebody's going to hand you some food and water, maybe help you clean up when the time comes. So in that mix, I mean, it is it is a horrible thing. But it's also, for those of us that have had the good fortune to be cared for when we're lying on the floor naked because it's come undone, um, it's all right there, you know, in that, in that image. And, and in my you know, study of goddess, one of the things about, particularly in, in the Hindu goddess pantheon, um, you know, there's a lot in the West and particularly in conservative Christianity that gets completely misunderstood and misinterpreted, as it does in, in some of Hinduism um, theologically, because there's diversity in Hinduism as well. But the goddess Kali in particular is where that's sort of my, my primary goddess figure that I go to, and she's this fearsome kind of grotesque, the bloody tongue and the, the severed heads as a necklace uh, around her. But you see, all that stuff she's doing is as a protector for her children. You know, all that blood and stuff, that, those are demonic forces, you know, whether you believe it literally or figuratively. And then as you dig down in the theology, those demonic forces, they exist in us. And what she's doing is helping us parse those out. And in the mythology, in the story is when you're destroying a demon, if a drop of that demon's blood hits the ground, a new demon springs up. So in these battles of trying to undo, these drops of blood are potentially seeds from multiple demons. And so that's why her tongue and her mouth are red is she's lapping up all that blood before it can hit the ground and replicate. She's taking that in herself. So within her, she holds your best interest at heart and is willing to be in the shit with you and kind of clean up as you're going through the struggle. 
And um, it's a powerful way to understand and relate to divinity. And, and I don't know, I am not aware of any masculine or male God that offers this to their children. Yeah, I love that whole imagery of holding all of that within her to protect and to take it on. And there's something about the Christianity that I grew up with that was so uninterested. That's not even the right word. But so uninterested in taking on any impurity or any problem. or It was all about separation and holiness unto the Lord and holiness was defined as, you know, this purification that had all this other stuff going on that was not particularly healthy. I can't remember who said it, um, but I love the, the line that says God's perfection is his willingness to live with our imperfection. Mm-hmm. That kind of reminds me of your goddess a little bit, like just willing to step into the fray mm-hmm. and and be and be present. Yeah. Yeah. And, and another thing about Kali that's in contrast to the God I grew up with is there's no eternal destruction waiting for you. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's not a threat that she makes. She's she's not easy to be around because she's always calling you to your better self and is willing to go through the pain with you. <laughs> right. But there's no threat of eternal damnation. It's like, you're going to keep doing this till we get it right. And if I have to born birth you again, I'll do it. <laughs> and, and we'll, we'll keep doing this. So it's, yeah, it's, it's powerful. Sounds like love. Love is patient. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. What do you think? Yeah. Bobby? How, do, what do, what do you, how do you comment on all that? Yeah, I, I've been really enjoying learning um, through Rajiv's study on, on that because it resonates deeply. You know, I, I am very process oriented in my understanding of just reality. But then to think about God as being in the process with us, um, dirty, God as, a, as, as dirty and bloody and messy uh, because we are dirty, bloody and messy. And, and God is that close to us, closer than we even are to ourselves sometimes. Um, it's comforting and it's also liberating and it, it's transformative. Mm-hmm. So what's it like now you guys, as you're speaking at your church, you're co-pastoring, um, and you're obviously in a, in a much different setting than you used to be, so you're freely able to draw upon these things. And uh, the sense of freedom, I assume, that you have now is dramatically different. What's that been like? Yeah, it's been, it's been amazing. It truly, you know, we, we love our church, um, Parkside Community Church in Sacramento. Um, we are in ministry with a group of people who, who see Jesus as a peacemaker, justice worker. Um, and some of them, we, we're in a theologically diverse church. And that's the point, is to be theologically diverse. There's no creed in our church, except to join together in uh, doing our best to follow in the way of Jesus. And some people see Jesus as, as Christ. Some people see Jesus as a really good teacher who has 
you know, really important things to, to say to this particular moment in time. So pastoring a church like that, there's a lot of freedom because people are hungry for theology and for these kinds of conversations, but there isn't an expectation that you're going to have the answer for them. In fact, their expectation is that they're going to push back and, and ask questions and wonder alongside us. So it's, it's, uh, it's amazing. It's amazing. So I would imagine, I don't know anything about your church, but that the people greatly respect you guys, but it seems like an environment like that would be less inclined to do this whole evangelical pastor worship idolatry kind of a thing. And so the pushback is, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, the structure is even set up, the governance structure is set up where uh, the pastor has influence, but, but the final say is the people, you know, that that's where the power really comes from. So yeah, they, they have lots of safeguards around this kind of cultish cult of personality. Yeah. I appreciate that point, Jonathan. Um, Cause that is a really important one. And what I would say that does flow freely in every direction at Parkside is deep affection. You know, it's really shared. And, and from that comes a recognition that we all have something beautiful to offer. And really, I see part of my role is helping create opportunities for people to bring their personhood, to share their wisdom, so that others are inspired by the presence and insight of all who are gathered. Um, and it happens in lots of different ways. You know, you have some folks who will never say anything in a public setting, but they want to be called upon to put together communal gatherings by creating space that's beautiful and inviting. And, and, and then, you know, as, as, as part of this affection, the driving force isn't so much programming as it is being together around some theme for the moment and, and the relationality of it all, which is very process. Yeah. And it's really great to work together too. You know, we did that. Mm -hmm. We did that in the Adventist world. Um, and then we needed a, a serious break from that for a long time. Like it was about 15 years, I think, where we each went in our own professional directions. I needed it probably more than Rajiv did because I, I had, I was so behind in finding my voice and in being able to, I remember the first time I walked into a room and this was in a progressive UCC church and, um, and it was a discussion forum or something. And I spoke, I had an opinion and I was brave enough to raise my hand and share it. And everybody was completely quiet listening to me. And I was like, Whoa, this feels really different. You know, I had never, and I mean, it was a, it was a co-ed, it was men and women in the same room. I had never had that experience before. So it's, it's taken me a long time to battle those inner demons of like, are you sure you should be here? Um, uh, you know, yeah. When I was with kids, no problem. And other women, no problem. But yeah. I can't even imagine. I mean, I, I guess I can, Yeah. So good for you. Um, I'm so thankful that that's happening in your guys' life for you and for both of you. 
you know, I, I'm in this really interesting situation. I, I think part of the, it's funny that I even asked that last question about uh, celebrity stuff. I think it's partly because I didn't want to, but I keep being drawn to listen. Have you, are you guys familiar with the um, rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast that Christianity Today is doing? Mm-hmm. The whole uh, Mark Driscoll, just like fiasco thing. A little bit. Yeah, I've been following that a little bit. So I actually haven't listened to that podcast. I've listened to uh, Dan Cook and uh, Tony Evans debrief it. And I don't even want to because it's a little bit like driving by a train wreck or a car wreck or something. I, I already know what I'm going to see. Mm-hmm. But, um, so, but I, I, I guess I haven't been able to help myself for the last few weeks. Uh, I've listened to a few of those and just have been reminded about the absurd celebrity pastor worship, the absurd amount of authority that that whole movement gives towards, um, you know, basically typically white heterosexual males who are charismatic and who can go off and kind of do their whole thing. And I think so partly that and partly because I've just been in this process of recognizing over the last several years that I'm a white heterosexual male with a, a slight amount of charisma who has been in that, that same circle and so as I have been in the process of being uninvited from the denomination and then now transitioning a faith community, yeah, like a lot of it has to do with just de-clergifying so much of it, uh, trying to, but it's, but it's challenging. I'm flattening that, the hierarchy. It's really challenging to make that transition because so many of us were programmed to only see it in this one way. And to raise money is easier in that one way, you know, to gain attention. Uh, yeah, it's really challenging. So, and I'm sure you guys, you still deal with all those practical things too, even in your setting, but mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know what I'm saying. I don't know. No, I, I hear no, it's, you. It's I, true. I, I think what you're doing is amazing mm-hmm. because you're, you know, we talked about our relationship being like we've been married and divorced several times. You're, you're kind of doing that with a whole community. And, and mm-hmm. that's, I mean, like, I don't even know. I, I would love to hear from you. Like where, where do you draw from? Like where, where are you finding resources and tools as you navigate that? That sounds really hard, Jonathan. <laughs> and also I'm like, that's amazing. It you know, it, it, we that's need remarkable. more of that. We need more of that because that's what it's going to take to, I think, make our country a better mm-hmm. place to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, some of it I'm just making it up as I go, but yeah, some of it is yeah. is trying to dive into all the stuff you guys are too with process theology and mm-hmm. open and relational, and that's been super helpful. You know, mimetic theory, Rene Girard, mm-hmm. all those things. Um, and then, and then some of it's just basically doing the opposite of everything that I was taught. Right. How did they used to do it at that leadership conference? Oh yeah. I want to do 180 degrees, but totally, totally. Yeah. I, I would love to cons- continue this conversation in various ways. We need to have you on as a guest so yes. we can, so we can ask you into questions. your story. Yeah. yeah. Let's do it. Give me a couple of weeks so I can make up some answers and we'll do it. All right. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Well, hey, thanks so much. Uh, have a great day. And um, 
I guess that's the that's the end of our time together, man. It's sad, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Yeah. And I I feel seen, being called a pain in the ass. I feel seen. <laughs> well, uh, in that case, I can really make you feel seen, man. <laughs> All right, I'm going to push record, or excuse me, end of the recording now, because that's it. And uh, I'll, uh, I'll email you guys. We'll be in touch. Sounds great. Thank Have you, a Jonathan. great day. Have a good day. Bye. Bye.